Let's open our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 33. It was my goal last week to really get through chapter 33 because as you study Jeremiah, this particular section, 30, 31, 32, and 33, is sort of a break of all the warnings of judgment that Jeremiah has been given to the people. Exactly 164 times in the book of Jeremiah, Babylon is made mention to as um, God's choice of instruments that he's going to use for judgment. And it is a reoccurring message. He only has one message. It is a heartbroken message from a heartbroken prophet. And yet, when we get to chapter 30 through 33, and we didn't make the 33 last week, so uh, we'll do 33 tonight, but it really is unique because it talks about the future, and primarily when we get to uh, verse 16, there's going to be this repeat of um, uh, the Lord our righteousness, which is a clear reference to the Lord Jesus Christ uh, and the future glory that's going to come. Then we get back into 34 and 35 and maybe even 36 tonight where we get back to the rejection of Jeremiah and his message. So let's go back and dive right in. Chapter 30 is a reconfirmation of the covenant that God has made with him. The setting Jeremiah has been put in prison. As we read chapter 33, that is his his setting. And that's what we read in verse 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the prison. So the statement there, much like John the Baptist giving his message in the prison, and he said in verse 2, thus says the Lord who made it, the Lord who formed it to establish it, the Lord is his name. He says, call to me and I will answer you and show you great And mighty things which you do not know. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of the city, the houses of the king of Judah, which have been pulled down to fortify against the siege mounds and the sword, they come to fight with the Chaldeans. Now, this is one of the 164 times that Babylon is going to be mentioned. So when we read Chaldean, it's the same as saying Babylonian or Nebuchadnezzar, and here's one of the places where it's repeated that this is going to be the instrument that God is going to use to judge um, these last three kings and the city of Jerusalem in particular. Uh, They come to fight with the Chaldeans, but only to fill their places with the dead bodies of men whom I will slay in my anger and my fury, all whose wickedness I have hidden my face from this city. Now, there was about, the last good king was Josiah, and there was a revival during his lifetime. But then we have these last three or four kings, and it's really all downhill. Uh, Once we get back to chapter 34, the next chapter, a message to um, Zedekiah. But up till this point, um, again, he's reiterating the same message that he's been bringing. Um, But he says, Behold, I will bring it health and healing, and I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth. So now he's talking future tense. And that's why this section, 30 through 33, is unique. I will cause the captives of Judah and the captives of Israel to return and rebuild those places as the first, I will cleanse them from their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. I will pardon all of their iniquities by which they have sinned and by which they have transgressed against me. Then it shall be to me a name of joy, of praise, of honor before all nations of the earth who will hear all the good that I do to them. They shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and the prosperity that I provide for it. Thus says the Lord, again there shall be heard in this place, of which you say it is desolate, without a man, without beast. In the cities of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man, without inhabitants, and without beast. But the voice of joy, and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, 
and the voice of the bride, the voice of those who will say, Praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, and his mercy endures forever. And all those who will bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord, for I will cause the captives of the land to return as the first, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in this place which is desolate, without man, without beast, and in all of its cities, there shall again be the habitation of shepherds causing their flocks to lie down. In the cities of the mountains, in the cities in the lowlands, in the cities around Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, the flocks shall again pass under the hands of him who counts them, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. Now we got a couple things that I can stop um, and make reference to here. And it's, there's, um, well, it's tied into maybe two or three. Uh, the first one is he's talking about them. Uh, this is 40 years that he has the same message, that they're going to go into captivity. They're going to be there for 70 years. But the promise is that he's going to restore them. That's why last week we were reading that Jeremiah was told to buy a piece of property. And um, as a result of buying the, prof- uh, the property, take the title deed and put it in a clay container um, because you're going to come back and you're going to have property. And um, Jeremiah was in prison when he got a message. His uncle came in and said, why don't you buy my land? And then it said that he knew it was the Lord when the land was offered to him. Uh, Jeremiah is full of symbolism. That would be one of them. Here's a piece of land, buy it. It's sort of an illustration to make the point. And so in one sense, he's talking about them coming back from Babylon after 70 years as an encouragement. Now, taking it a step farther, um, in 70 AD, Jesus actually predicted in Luke 19 He predicted because they didn't know the time of his coming. Those are his words. He says, this was the day made for your peace, but you weren't ready for it. And because you did not know the time of my coming, implying that they were supposed to know, they should have been studying Daniel. They should have been studying Jeremiah. But Jesus said, because you don't know what's going to happen, this would have been April 6th, a little bit after that, 32 AD, and Jesus told them, your enemies are going to come. They're going to surround you. This time it's not the Babylonians, but it was going to be the Romans, who were the world leaders at that time. And he said they're going to throw the stones. There won't be one stone left upon another because you didn't know the time of your coming. Now, he said that in 32 AD. 38 years later, in 70 AD, that's exactly what happened. The Romans came in. uh, They destroyed the temple. Just like in chapter 34, we're going to see the fall of Solomon's temple. And um, it's uh, talked about it being destroyed and burned. So it's sort of, uh, it happened once. It happened in 70 AD, and they haven't been back in the land since then. They've been driven, it's called um, um, the dysphoria, the dispersion, and that's why they're called wandering Jews. They have been without a homeland since 70 AD until the Lord said he would bring them back. Now, this would be um, not what we have in view here. We're sort of waiting for the next event to take place, which I believe is the rapture of the church, where God will once again, after the rapture, deal with the nation of Israel. And here he's promising, in his next couple of verses here, it's clearly millennial. So when I read verses 15 and 16 um, and 17, we are not talking about the Babylonian captivity. 
we are talking about the time after the great tribulation when the Lord Jesus Christ returns with all of his saints, that would be you and I, and it's here that he will establish his righteousness. Then and only then will Israel have peace. Now, let let me just get a little sidetracked here, and I really shouldn't because I really want to get through 36. (laughs) But um, this has never happened to any ethnic group in world history. They have never, uh, a nation has never been conquered and then dispersed and then have a generation or two go by and then come back and be a people group again. They've always been assimilated. There are no Philistines anymore. There are no uh, Amalekites anymore. Have you run into an Amalekite lately? They just started around. Well, they've been conquered. They've uh, been dispersed. And they assimilate into a society. The only exception in the world is the Jewish people. And uh, they're unique in that respect. But the scriptures clearly say that's going to happen. So here, and this is one of the things we want to be conscious as we teach through the Bible, that we can jump where he's encouraging them, I'm going to bring you back, you're going to um, uh, plant your vineyards again, and so on and so forth. But then he jumps ahead, and uh, all of a sudden, when we read 15, let's read it now, he says, in those days and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness, And he will execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which he shall be called the Lord, our righteousness, or Jehovah to sing to new. That's what that, um, the Lord, our righteousness, Jehovah to sing to us, that's what it means. Now, they have never had really a righteous king um, like the Lord is going to be for the next 1,000 years. We call it the kingdom age. We call it um, um, the millennium. We give it different names. But what we have in view here is that kingdom age that's going to last for 1,000 years. We get that from Revelation 20. And let me just piggyback even a little bit more sidetrack and go back and talk about Sunday when I was talking about John Calvin and Calvinism. Now, in his Reformed theology and what Calvinism is all about and what he attempted to do in converting a city, Geneva, Switzerland, by force, penalty of death if he didn't go along with it, was the kingdom on earth now. That's what John Calvin was all about. They, do, they are a millennial. They do not believe in a future millennial reign. And, um, you know, it failed miserably. And nobody knows just how bad Calvin was. I've got a lot of requests for the name of Dave Hunt's book. We're doing our best to run that down for those of you who want to do more research into it. But he's dead wrong. Uh, he would be what we would label as kingdom now or dominionism. And that is that we will evangelize the world, we'll take dominion over this planet, and when we get it Christianized, then and only then will Jesus return. Well, I don't know if you've been watching the news lately, (laughs) but it doesn't look like we're living in the kingdom as far as I can tell, and if we are, I'm extremely disappointed. (laughs) And um, every day that goes by, it's just, it's just another thing. So as we look at these verses here, this is 33. It's a break in the action. It's offering hope to the people. Not only that they're going to come back from Babylon, but then he jet, jets way ahead into what would still be at our future. And that is what the Lord told us in that prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, a real kingdom that he is going to rule and reign over, and his name will be called the Lord, our righteousness, Jehovah to Sigtenu. So again, as we're going through the scriptures, be sensitive to the, he can, he can change it from one verse to the next, have a local application to Jeremiah's time, and the people coming back, yes, you're going to go into captivity, but I'm going to bring you back. 
but way in the future, I'm going to establish the Lord of our righteousness. Verse 17, for thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, nor shall the priest, the Levites, lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me, uh, to kindle grain offerings and sacrifice continually. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, Now if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that there will not be day and night in their season, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he may not have a son to reign on his throne with the Levites, the priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, nor the sands of the sea measured, so will I multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Have you not considered what these people have spoken, saying, The two families which the Lord has chosen, he has also cast them off? Thus they have despised my people as if they should be no more a nation before me? Thus says the Lord, If my covenant is not with day and night, and if I have not appointed and ordained and ordinances of heaven and earth, then I will cast away the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, so that I will not take any of his descendants to be rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I will cause their captives to return, and I will have mercy on them. Go ahead, see if you can take the planet Mars out of its orbit. If you can, then I'll break my covenant with David that I promised to be established. Chapter 33 is um, 30, 31, 32, 33 are the chapters that in the midst of this one continual um, reaffirming there's going to be judgment, there's no way around it, he throws these chapters in and he says, but it's not going to be forever because I'm going to bring you back from the captivity, but better yet, I'm going to establish the Lord Jesus Christ for a thousand years yet future and uh, he will rule and reign as it says in, uh, with a, a rod of righteousness. Now we switch gears in chapter 34. Now the Lord speaks directly to these last three kings. In this case it's a message directly to verses one through seven is referring to uh, Zedekiah's captivity is here prophesied and foretold. All right, let's pick it up and we'll read the first seven verses. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, when Nebuchadnezzar, there it is again, one of the 164 times, when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army, all the kingdoms of the earth under his dominion, and all the people fought against Jerusalem and all its cities, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Go and speak to Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and tell him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the, to the hand of the king of Babylon, and he's going to burn it with fire, and you shall not escape from his hand. You will surely be taken and delivered uh, into his hand. Your eyes shall see the eyes of the king of Babylon. He shall speak with you face to face, and you shall go to Babylon. Now this is a message to King Zedekiah. Yet, hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. For thus says the Lord concerning you, you shall not die by the sword. But you shall die in peace, as in the ceremony of your fathers, the former kings who were before you. So they shall burn incense for you and lament for you, saying, Alas, Lord. For I have pronounced the word, says the Lord. And then Jeremiah the prophet spoke all these words to Zedekiah, the king of Judah, in Jerusalem. And when the king of Babylon's army fought against Jerusalem and the cities of Judah that were left against Lachish, Isaiah, uh, Isaiah, and only these fortified cities remained on the cities of Judah. So Zedekiah 
is a, a personal message of his, what's going to happen to him. He's going to see the king of Babylon face to face. This hasn't happened yet, but he's giving this word to him, telling, giving him a heads up about what is going to happen. That was to the king. Verses 8 through the rest of the chapter is a message that's going to be given to the people. Um, the people obey it for a, a bit. They hear it, they do it, and then they change their mind. And it has to do, uh, and we'll go back to Leviticus and lay this all out. There were certain provisions that if um, in Judaism, if uh, you didn't have uh, any money and you were going broke, you lost your job, whatever, um, you could... Uh, give up your land. It could be purchased by a kinsman redeemer. Um, you could work for somebody for six years. And I'm going to use the word slave, but not really in a, in a sense that we would use it. Or what happened um, uh, during uh, President Lincoln's reign in our own country with uh, civil rights and um, the freedom of the slaves. So there was provision in the law that you could only be a slave for six years. And then in, after that time, then you could return because that's, all, that's what the law required. So with that much of a background, uh, let's read verses 8 through 16. Then the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people who were at Jerusalem to proclaim liberty to them that every man should set free his male or female slave, a Hebrew man or woman, that no one should keep a Jewish brother, notice brother, in bondage. Now when all the princes and all the people who had entered into the covenant heard that everyone should set free his male and female slaves, that no one should keep them in bondage anymore, they obeyed and they let him go. But... Then they, afterwards, they changed their mind. And, um, you know, they had to do their own dishes and they had to plant their own gardens. They said, we don't like this. And we're going to go back to the old ways. And it wasn't long. Afterwards, they changed their mind and they made the male and female servants return, whom they had set free, and they brought them into subjection as male and female slaves. Now, therefore, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I made a covenant with your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, saying, at the end of seven years, let every man uh, set free his Hebrew uh, brother who has been sold to him, and when he has served you those six years, then you let him go from you. But your fathers did not obey, nor did they incline their ears, then you recently turned and did what was right in my sight, every man proclaiming liberty to his neighbor. And he made a covenant before me in a house which is called by my name. But then you turned around and profaned my name. And every one of you brought back his male and female slaves, whom he had set at liberty at their pleasure and brought them back into subjection uh, to be your male and female slaves." All right, so let's go back to the book of Leviticus. Let me show you where this comes from. Leviticus chapter um, 25, picking it up in verse 39. We often hear about the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. There were 316, not 10. Concerning the laws that would govern the Jewish people, when they became a nation. They're being brought out of captivity, but now the Lord is giving them rules and guidelines to live by, real practical stuff that comes up. And if there was a question, or what do we do here type situation, there was an answer for it. In the 316 laws that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. So here is what they would do in a poverty situation, Let's pick it up with verse 36. It says, if, 
If, uh, if one of your brethren who dwells among you becomes poor and he sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave, but as a hired servant. And so when you hear people say, uh, oh, you can't take the Bible literally, what do you, you expect us to go back to slavery. And so they have one mindset of slavery um, in America, and they're comparing it to what we're reading about here, and it's not the same at all. This, this is a welfare program that you could be in, involved with, and it was understood that if you were poor, that you could say, I'm poor. <laughs> you know, take me in so I can not die of starvation. And it was set up as uh, you're not a servant, you're a hired servant and a sojourner. He shall be with you and serve you until the year of Jubilee. And then he shall depart from you, both he and his children with him, and shall return to his own family. He, will, he, will, he shall return to the possessions of his father. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him with vigor, but you shall fear your God. He's your brother, and he's in a tough place right now, and he needs you to provide for him but only for six years. And as for your male and female slaves whom you have from the nations that are around you, from then you may uh, buy male and female slaves. Moreover, you shall buy the children of the strangers who sojourn among you and their families who are with you, and you will take them as an inheritance for your children and to inherit them as a possession. They shall be um, your permanent slaves, but regarding your Brethren, the children of Israel, you shall not rule over one another. And so the time frame for this was a six-year period of times, and then after the sixth year, they were to uh, be returned. All right, let's go back to Jeremiah 34. Picking up in verse 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord, You have not obeyed me in proclaiming this liberty, every one of his brothers and every one of his neighbors. But I proclaim liberty to you, says the Lord, to the sword, to pestilence, and to famine. And I will deliver you to trouble among the nations and the kingdoms of the earth. And I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not performed the words of the covenant which they made before me, when they cut the calf in two, uh, when they cut the calf in two and passed between the parts of it. Um, this, this was um, um, a covenant sort of, let me explain this, this procedure. It's like signing a, a contract. Um, when they passed between the, the parts Passing between the parts of the calf, this is the way men made a covenant or a contract in those days. Uh, They took a sacrifice. They would cut it right in half, putting half the animal on one side and half on the other. Then the men went between, and they would actually join hands. This is also the way God made a covenant with Abraham. It's like going to the notary of of the public in our day, Zedekiah, the princes, the priests, and the people had all violated God's covenant and not granting liberty to the servants, and therefore God pronounces this judgment on them. So he says in verse 20, I gave them into the hands of their enemies and into the hands of those who seek their life. Their dead bodies shall be for meat, for the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the earth. And I will give Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and his princes into the hands of their their enemies and the hands of those who seek their life and into the hands um, of, of the king of Babylon's army, which has gone back from you. Behold, I will command, says the Lord, and cause them to return to this city, and they will fight against it and take it and burn it with fire and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without habitation. All right, chapter 34. Two 
two sections. Verses 1 through 7 was a message straight to Zedekiah, saying you're going to see Nebuchadnezzar eyeball to eyeball. And then a message to the people um, and how they treated their Jewish brothers by taking them back when the Lord told them to set them, set them free. Now, um, chapter 35 is a complete contrast of a group of people that are called the, the Rechabites. And the best way I can describe the Rechabites is have you think of John the Baptist just for a little bit, how he lived. Um, he lived in the wilderness. He did not have a home, per se. Uh, he had the vow of a Nazarite. And um, with that vow of a, of a Nazarite, there are certain things that he could not do. One was drinking wine or even having a vineyard. John just didn't do that. And remember when we talked about John being in prison and he doubted and he sent a couple of his disciples and he was wondering, he doubted. He said, go ask Jesus if he's really the Messiah. And um, because the way John lived was one way, like a Nazarite, and the word was out that Jesus was hanging around with tax collectors, sinners, people of questionable character, and known for being a wine bibbler. That's the terminology that's used. Now, here's John in prison, and he's thinking this through. And he's probably thinking, that doesn't sound very godly to me for the son of, son of man to be doing. And so the Lord sends a message back with John the Baptist's disciples. He says, go tell John this. Tell him the blind see. Tell him the lame walk. Tell him the gospel's being preached to the poor. And all of this would have been a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 61, and John would have known it all too well. Oh, and by the way, one more thing. Tell John this. And blessed is he who is not offended by me. John was offended. And that would have cut him to the heart because nobody knew that, what was in John's heart. But Jesus knew it. And he says, John, he was basically telling John, John, isn't the real issue that you see me associating with people that, that you, instead of talking to them, you said repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And um, you came as that prophet. You lived in the wilderness. You uh, dressed like a prophet. You ate honey and uh, wild locusts. That was his lifestyle. I'm telling you all this because as we talk about the Rechabites, um, they are a sharp contrast, the Rechabites who faithfully obeyed the commandments of their earthly father and the children of Israel, who had failed to hearken to the command of their loving heavenly father. So what we have is a contrast by, as we look at chapter 35. Here was a tribe of people called the Rechabites, and they lived under the law of what we would call the law of the Nazarite. So let's pick it up in verse one with that much of a background. 35. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, saying, I want you to go to the house of the Rechabites. I want you to speak to them. And bring them into the house of the Lord, one of the chambers, and give them wine to drink. And then I took uh, Jejaniah, the son of Jeremiah, uh, the son of Habaziniah. Oh, they're going to put me through all these eyes here. <laughs> his brothers and all his sons and the whole house of the Rechabites. And I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the chamber of the sons of Han and the son of Igaliah, a man of God, which was by the chamber of the princes above the chamber of Messiah, the son of Shalom, the keeper of the door. And then I set before the sons of the house of the Rechabites bowls full of wine and cups. And I said to them, drink wine. But they said, we will drink no wine. 
For Jonabab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, You shall drink no wine, nor shall your sons forever. You shall not build houses. Now, at this time, I'm going to put something on the screen. And again, uh, this is what we would refer to as a Bedouin tent today when we travel the land. Guys, you can go ahead and put it up right now. And I want to connect the dots with the vow of a Nazarite, how they would live like John the Baptist did in the wilderness. When we go to Israel in November, we'll be driving up from the Dead Sea. We'll go through Jericho. We go past a place where they have a building, it's a tourist site that's um, where the Good Samaritan would have taken care of that man. Of course, that is, it's a sea site. It's not really the, the, the spot, but it's a place you can stop and give a Bible study about the Good Samaritan. Very close to that, we go to Genesis land. And um, there we get off our nice air-conditioned bus and we go, and everybody rides a camel for about a quarter of a mile to a tent that looks just like this. And we're greeted um, by Eliezer, who would have been the servant of Abraham. And Abraham comes out. He's an Aussie. But he doesn't talk with an Aussie accent until after you get him out of character. He's in total character during this whole time. But he stands at the entrance of the tent, and we go in, and we sit on pillows on the floor. The table's about this far off the ground. And um, that's how Abraham would have lived. The Bedouins to this day live in tents like this. They're nomads. And when you're in the land, as we're driving up to Jerusalem from Jericho, we start pointing out the window. There's a Bedouin tent. There's a Bedouin tent over there. There's one over there. And they're nomadic. And they have their sheep, and they, they, they can break camp, and they can take their flocks to um, uh, wherever they want to. So what we have in view here, and the reason I wanted to put this particular picture up, is this, again, would have been the way a Nazarite would have lived, John and John the Baptist was. But so was this family um, here, And um, the Rechabites, where do they leave off? In verse 7, you shall not build a house, sow a seed, or plant a vineyard, nor have any of these all the days of your life you will dwell in tents, that you may live many days in the land where you are sojourners. Thus we have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, and that he charged us to drink no wine, all of our days, we, our wives, our sons, our daughters, nor to build ourselves houses to dwell in, uh, nor do we have uh, vineyards or fields or seeds, but we have dwelt in tents and have obeyed and done according to all that our Father commanded us. But it came to pass, when Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Israel, came up into the land, that we said, Come, let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans, for fear of the army of the Syrians, so we dwell at Jerusalem. So they left their tents because they would have been destroyed. They thought at this time they would have been safe in Jerusalem. But then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, thus says the Lord God, the host, the God of Israel, go and tell the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, will you not receive instruction to obey my word, says the Lord. The word of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, which he commanded his sons not to drink wine, are performed, for to this day they drink none, and they obeyed their father's commandment. But although I have spoken to you, rising early, speaking to me, you did not obey. So what we have again is a type of an illustration here these guys were obedient to an earthly father. They did what dad asked them to do. The contrast you want to find in verse 14. I'm your heavenly father. And in contrast, I, I speak to you and you're not obeying. So again, we have um, an illustration that's being used and he's choosing to use the Rechabites as um, 
those who had simple respect and, ob- and obeyed what dad said. What dad said went, and they, went, they obeyed it. I have also sent you and your, my servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, saying, Turn out every way from his evil way, amend your doings, and don't go after other gods to serve them, and then you will dwell in the land which I have given you and your fathers, but you have not inclined your ear, you haven't obeyed me. Surely the sons of Jonadab, the sons of Rechab, have performed the commandment of their father, which he commanded them, but these people have not obeyed me. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring on Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the doom that I have pronounced against them, because I have spoken to them, but they have not heard. I have called to them, they have not answered. And Jeremiah said to the house of the Rechabites, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because you have obeyed the commandment of your father and kept all of his precepts and done according to all that he commanded you. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not lack a man to stand before me forever. So from this family that was obedient, um, there's going to be this lineage. So in chapter 25, um, we find the Rechabites who are part of the believing remnant. In sharp contrast to the nation as a whole, God has given us the account to remind us that there has always been a remnant. He will never leave the world without a witness for himself. Even in the darkest times in history, the world will ever know during the Great Tribulation period, which is yet future, there will be 144,000. And after that, there will be the, the two witnesses who are going to stand before God. And this is just the way God is going to have it. Even at the same time, Satan is being allowed to run all things. So this contrast here is showing that even in the midst, there's still a a small remnant that are being obedient. And as a result of that, in verse 19, God says he's going to bless this tribe and uh, their heritage is going to be preserved. And we're going to make it through 36. Praise the Lord. The message of the scroll. Uh, This is uh, probably where we'll take off on Sunday. And um, really it's about the importance of the book that you're holding in your hand tonight. What in your heart do you feel about it? Um, I can't imagine living without it. Um, Nothing satisfies my soul like this book. It is either loved or it is hated. There is no neutral ground with it. And so as we look at this chapter, as, as I would lead into it, what I would say is we have the word of the Lord um, being spoken through Jeremiah. He's going to have a guy named Barak uh, write it down on a scroll. And so with that much of a background, we, we literally have chapter 36, which is a part of the scriptures of the 66 books in the Bible. And um, the way the king is, is going to receive it. So as we get into this, this is the message of the scroll. It's going to be dictated from Jeremiah to this man named Baruch. So let's pick it up in verse 1. Now it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah. So another thing you want to notice here is we're not in a chronological order. Jehoiakim was before the message that was to Zedekiah. All right, now it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, that the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, I want you to take a scroll of a book. I want you to write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel, against Judah, against all the nations from the day I spoke to you from the days of 
Josiah even to this day. And it may be that the house of Judah will hear all the adversities that I purpose to bring upon them, that everyone may turn from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. And then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll of a book at the instruction of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he had spoken to him. So basically dictation is from Jeremiah, from the Lord. Now it's being put down in a scroll. And Jeremiah commanded Baruch, saying, I am, am confined, I cannot go into the house of the Lord. You go, therefore, and read from the scroll which you have written at my instruction the words of the Lord in the hearing of the people in the Lord's house on the day of, of the people fasting. And you shall also read them in the hearing of all of Judah who come from their cities. It may be that they will present their supplication before the Lord and everyone will turn from their evil way. In other words, hearing the word of God and uh, God's purpose and his plans to repent from their evil ways. He's giving them fair warning. And uh, who knows, maybe, maybe they will turn if they hear the word of the Lord. For great is the anger and the fury which the Lord has pronounced against the people. And Barak, the son of Neriah, did according to all that Jeremiah the prophet commanded him reading from the book the words of the, the Lord in the Lord's house. Now, it came to pass, in the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, in the ninth month that they proclaimed a fast before the Lord, to all the people in Jerusalem and to all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem. And then Baruch read from the book the words of Jeremiah in the house of the Lord in the chamber of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, the scribe, in the upper court and the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house in the hearing of all the people. Now, when Micaiah, the son of Gemariah, the son of Saphon, heard all the words of the Lord from the book, he then went down to the king's house, into the a scribe's chamber, and there all the princes were sitting. Uh, there was Elashama, the scribe, Deliah, the son of Shemaiah, and um, all these other guys that are mentioned in verse 12. <laughs> and all the princes. Let's get to the quick. Then Micaiah declared to them all the words that he had heard from Baruch. He read the book in the hearing of the people. Therefore, all the princes since sent Jehudai, the son of Netaniah, the son of Shalmiah, the son of Cushai, to Baruch, saying, Take in your hand the scroll from which you have read in the hearing of the people and come. And so Baruch, the son of Neriah, took the scroll in his hand and he came to them and he said to them, Sit down now and read it in our hearings. So, so Baruch read it in their hearings. And it happened when they had heard all the words that they looked in fear from one to the other. And they said to Baruch, we will surely tell the king all of these words. And they asked Baruch saying, tell us now, how did you write all these words? At, at his instruction? And so Baruch answered them and, and proclaimed with his mouth all these words to me. And I wrote them with ink in the book. And then the princes said to Baruch, Go and hide you and Jeremiah. Let no one know where you are. And they went to the king into the court. But they stored the scroll in the chamber of Elisha, the scribe, and told all the words of the hearing to the king. So basically, they get together with the princes. 
they hear what Jeremiah has to say in this scroll. They said this information needs to be passed down to the king. In the meantime, you and Jeremiah need to find a hiding spot. So in verse 21, the king sent Jehudai to bring the scroll, and he took it from Elishama, the scribe's chamber, and Jehudai read it in the hearing of the king, in the hearing of the princes who stood beside the king. Now, the king was sitting in the winter house of the ninth month. Um, it can get cold in Jerusalem. And actually, there has been times when you get a real rare shot of snow falling. And this evidently was the winter, and he had his fireplace going with a fire burning in the hearth before him. And it happened when Jehudai had heard three or four columns. In other words, he's just getting into what Jeremiah is saying, that the king cut it with the scribe's knife, and he cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until the scroll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Yet they were not afraid, nor did they tear their garments, the king nor any of his servants who heard these words. Well, he had heard enough. He didn't want to hear anymore. And he said, shut up already. And he took it and he began to tear it up, and what wasn't tore up, he threw the rest into the fireplace. Nevertheless, uh, we have Eliathan and uh, Delaliah and Gemariah. They implored the king not to burn the scroll, but he wouldn't listen to him. And the king commanded Jeremel, the son, the king's son, and uh, Zariah, the son of Ezrael, and uh, Shalmiah, the son of Abdeel, to seize Baruch the scribe, and Jeremiah the prophet, but the Lord had hid them. Now, after the king had burned the scroll with the words which Baruch had written at the instruction of Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, all right, do it again. Take yet another scroll. Write in it all the former words that were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. Sound familiar? Um, The commandments, when Moses came down, he was so upset that he broke them. And they actually had to have a second set, and it was done a second time. The same thing is happening here. 29. You shall say to Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, thus says the Lord, you have burned this scroll, saying, Why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and cause men and beasts to cease from here? Let's just try to make a couple personal connections as we're studying history. Everything we're looking at here is a historical fact. It happened exactly the way that the Lord said it would. They went into captivity. They were there for 70 years. After the 70 years, they returned. And everything that the Lord said would happen, did happen. My Bible says in the last days, um, there will be an apostasy, a falling away from sound doctrine. And um, the Bible says they will have itching ears. And they really won't want to hear what God's word has to say about... um, Denying yourself, picking up your cross, um, being obedient to the scriptures. and But they will gravitate towards teachers who will actually give messages that make them feel good. And um, in some cases, when you start to talk about the great tribulation that's coming, people go, I don't want to hear it. Who wants to hear stuff like that? And uh, that these sort of things are going to be coming upon the earth to the point where the Lord says men's hearts are going to fail them for fear when they see the things that are coming upon the earth. I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Go ahead, pick, pick your field. It can be economics. It can be um, uh, the war in the Middle East. Earthquake in the central part of Italy today killed 120 people. 
Jesus said one of the signs of the last days will be an increase of earthquakes. He says these are just the beginnings of sorrows. So if we're to be true to the times that, that we're living in right now, Jesus said the generation that sees the regathering of the nation of Israel will see the fulfillment of all Bible prophecy. And the Bible declares it's the beginning of sorrows as it was in the days of Noah, so it's going to be in the last days. The governor or a judge in Texas took a stand today. And um, he went against Obama's mandate that as school starts in a week, that as far as he's concerned in his state, the boys are going to go to the boys' bathroom and the girls are going to go to the girls' bathroom. And um, he's taking a stand. But can you imagine for a second your parents, uh, we're getting old enough, just, but just think that uh, our parents, are, I would go up to my mom and my dad 20 years ago, and I'd say, guess what? A law's just been passed that guys can go into girls' bathrooms and showers, and the girls can go, and if they, it's just because it sort of mixed up with their sexual identity. They'd say, are you crazy? <laughs> That's what my father would say. Are you nuts? That's never going to happen. Who would have ever dreamt that we'd see what we're seeing today? And yet, are we seeing it? I mean, this stuff is totally absurd and crazy, and yet it's happening. As it was in the days of Noah. That passage um, is followed by Jesus' parable of the fig tree, the regathering of the nation of Israel. Gang, that happened in 1948. We're living in that time. That is the sign of the times. So what should we expect? Well, not happy, clappy stuff. But the days are going to get worse and worse, and men's heart, it says, the love of many will grow cold. They will be indifferent if a person is saved or not. They could care less. The days of Noah, men's heart were only evil continually. That was the diagnosis of the world at that time, and the Lord says, enough, judgment's coming. And at the baptism, we went to 2 Corinthians 5, and the gospel is there, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. But right before that verse, it gives us marching instructions that says that We are ambassadors. When you're born again, you become an ambassador for Christ. And you have a ministry of reconciliation. So, we have a job to do, in other words. If we've been born again, you've been adopted into the family of God. And you become an ambassador. And as an ambassador, you have a job with the ministry of reconciling people to God. That's what God has called you to do. Good place for an amen. We have that ministry. We have a calling. But here's the interesting thing when you think about ambassadors and what's going on in the Middle East. Right before a war, is, they know it's imminent. And um, they know the war is going to happen. They always will call their ambassadors out of that country and they'll bring them home. Okay, let's make it personal. The great tribulation is about to kick off. We're living in the days of Noah. And the Lord, if we're ambassadors and there's a war coming, that's what the rapture is all about. You see, he's calling the ambassadors home. And then what's going to happen? Then the war is going to hit. We see it in our, our government. That's the natural thing to do. And so if in the meantime we're to be about our father's business, we have the ministry and we have a responsibility and we have probably one of the greatest tools. Well, we do have the greatest tool. We have this book here. It tells you what's going to happen before it happens. And it goes over things over and over and over again. And the word of God is the word of God. You're going to have one of two reactions to it. It's going to be like Jeremiah, who, who, who was having a hard day one time. He said, that's it, I quit. No more talking about God around anymore. And then in the very next sentence, he says, but I couldn't. He says, his word burned in me. I couldn't, I couldn't help but share what I know. How can we not 
talked about what's going on in the world using God's word and current events to try to open people's eyes. This is what's gonna happen, one of two things. You're gonna have people that say, sit down, I wanna hear this. Go ahead, Baruch, what's Jeremiah got to say? They wanna hear. And then you're gonna have guys like the king, Jehoiakim, and he says, four verses, that's all I wanna hear. Rip it up, burn it up. And there's gonna be that reaction too. And uh, that's why people are gravitating away from the inerrancy of scripture. They're getting away from absolutes and they're letting down their doctrinal guards. They won't stand for anything anymore. And, um, but we have, a, we have a mandate. I can't add anything to this book and I can't take anything away from this book. Another good place for an amen. So here we are, what has the Lord told us to do? Well, Paul said he wanted to finish well. Paul said, I want to give you the whole counsel of God. And yet, people don't want to hear the whole counsel of God. What, go, go to church on a Wednesday night in the middle of Jeremiah when all he's talking about is bad things? And, um, and um, my answer to that is absolutely yes. Because that's the only way you're going to get the whole counsel of God. Yeah, we, you can take it and tie it into current events, what was happening to Jeremiah is certainly happening to our country. Judgment definitely has to be imminent with, um, with the laws that we have in our land today. It's only a matter of time. Let's finish our chapter because I'm out of time. All right. Uh, verse 29, then you will say to Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, thus says the Lord, you have burned the scroll. Why have you written it? Uh, why have you written it in the that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy the land and cause men and beasts to cease from here. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall shall have no one to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body will be cast out into the heat of the day and, and in the frost of night. I will punish him and his family and his servants for their iniquity, and I will bring on them and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all the men of Judah all the doom that I have pronounced against them, and they did not heed. And then Jeremiah took another scroll, and he gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it the instructions of Jeremiah, all the words of the book, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And besides, there were added to them many similar words. This is exactly what happened to Jehoiakim. Uh, he has no one to sit upon the throne of David to this day. The Lord Jesus, who does have claim to that throne, did not come through this line. But through Mary was born in the, in the line of Nathan, another son of David, but not through this line here. And, and through it, uh, the Lord Jesus has his own uh, bloodline. And so in this closing chapter here, what it shows us that Jehoiakim, what he thought of God's word. He just took it, threw it in in fire, and he could have cared less. He didn't accept it, and he didn't believe it. Um, I'll close with this story that I ran across today. Um, It's about how people feel about the scriptures and it's about a, a young boy who, who found the family Bible and he says Ma I found an old dusty thing high upon a shelf just look mom says well that's a Bible Tommy dear be careful that's God's book God's book the young one said then Ma before we lose it we better send it back to God because you know we never use it we had a family Bible for years that sat on a coffee table. It was this big, that thick, that big. Every once in a while, I'd open it and look at the pictures. But read it? We never read the Bible, but it was always there. It was a family Bible that was always there, and we could have cared less. If you ask you're a Christian, of course, look, we've got family Bible sitting right on the dining room table. But how many people 
actually consider it their daily food. Jesus said, man can't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from here. And by every, I mean every. Even, even the, the tough stuff. The Bible says that if we're a Christian, we're to labor in the word. That means work on it. Even the tough stuff that we don't want to always want to hear. Amen? Amen? Pass my time, let's stand, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your, your word tonight. As um, we jump from the chapters of the future hope where the Lord our righteousness will reign, we thank you for hope, Lord. We thank you when all is said and done, as it says in 1 Corinthians 13, that we have faith, we have hope, and we have love. And um, we thank you that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. We thank you that you hold this book above even your own name. You tell us that heaven and earth will pass away, but not this book. So Lord, as we consider the indifference of Jehoiakim, and his indifference and his hatred towards your word. I pray that you would create in us a longing desire to feed on your word and be satisfied with your word. Thank you for your word tonight. Bless your people as we go now in Jesus' name. Amen.